Now, you would expect that I would begin uh, today's sermon with some sort of illustration from March Madness and the basketball craziness that's going on, but I'm not doing that because it was a painful weekend for me (laughs) and for many of you. So we're just not going there. One of the things, though, that you definitely notice when you watch all this basketball is is all the ads, right? All the advertisements. Now, for my money, one of the most awkward sort of categories of advertisement on television right now, not the most awkward, but one of the most awkward, uh, are, are all the ads, and I've always felt this way, even since I was a little boy, all of the ads that deal with, you know, personal hygiene and, and grooming, right? Now, we all, we get this, right? We all know this. There are, there are facts of life that everybody has to deal with. If you're a human being, if you're an adult human being, there's just some facts of life that you have to deal with. You got to deal with perspiration. You just do. You, you got to deal with facial blemishes. You got to deal with body odor. Some of us have to deal with dandruff. And then there are other things that I wouldn't dream of mentioning from the pulpit, right? Okay, we get that. We have to deal with these things. But to have to watch cheery, upbeat ads about them at every commercial break, seemingly, it's just, it's really too much. I think it's too much. I mean, how many dry, sweat-free armpits do I need to see in a lifetime? You know, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. You know that, you know these ads, right? It's just too much. But advertisers keep throwing them at us. All of these awkward, personally awkward ads. Why do they do this? Well, they do it because of us, right? We care and we care deeply what other people think about us. We care about our, our appearance. The market for deodorants, just deodorants, in the United States, $3 billion. Worldwide, the market for deodorants, $11 billion. $11 billion just to take care of armpits. You factor in the rest of our bodies, and worldwide, we spend something close to $500 billion a year on beauty and personal care. Now, to put that in perspective, because $500 billion, what is $500 billion? That's a number that's so big, you have no idea what that means. To put it into perspective, if, if, if beauty and personal care products were a country, they would be the 30th richest country in the world. The 30th richest. We spend a lot of money... Because we care. We care about our appearance before each other. We, we, we care about what other people think of us. When I, when I walk into a room, when I walk into a meeting, when, I, when, when you, know, you, you, you meet that person that for whatever reason you, you're worried about what they're going to think of you, you want confidence that when you reach out to shake their hand or you raise your hand to answer the question, you know, you're, you're not showing sweat stains, right? So, so you spend the money. What happens when the audience isn't the boss or the date 
or the prospective in-law? What happens when the audience is God? What happens when actually he doesn't care too much how you look on the outside because he's staring at what you look like on the inside? Where do you get confidence for that interview? We're going to need more than a stick of deodorant and the right hair gel, right? As we consider what authentic Christianity looks like this spring, we come this morning to the the challenge of our confidence before God. Confidence before God. If you you will, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1901. 1901. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. I'm going to read just to the end of the chapter. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. John began this larger section of his letter, which begins all the way back in chapter 2, verse 28. He began it by stating his desire that we would be confident and unashamed when Christ returns. He's, he has in view that, 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 that interview, that final interview that we're all going to have, right, when, when God comes back. So chapter 2, verse 28, now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Now, that's where he began this whole section. And, and he's, he's since then laid out the tests of obedience and love that the genuine Christian. Now, I realize the microphone's going in and out. So just bear with us. They're working on that. So he's, he's, he's talking about these two tests, the test of, of love and the test of obedience and he's laying those out as the test that mark the genuine Christian. This is, this is what he's been doing. Now, if you've been coming along on Sunday mornings, or if you've just been reading his letter, right about now, you're, you've been examining your life. You've been looking for evidence of, of love. You've been looking for obedience. And you're beginning to wonder, am I really a Christian? I mean, if what John is saying here is true... Am am I really a Christian? You you want me to have confidence, John, but you're laying out these tests and I seem to keep failing them. So it's not surprising that at just this moment in his letter, John pauses and he directly addresses this question. And his answer to the question, how, how can I be sure? How can I have confidence before God? His answer is that the genuine Christian is confident before God by faith in the life of Christ who lives in us by the Spirit. 
right? So that, that, there's kind of the one-sentence summary of this passage. The genuine Christian is confident before God by faith in Christ and, and his life who lives in us by the Spirit. Now, that sounds good, but it's not that simple, is it? Because our confidence is constantly challenged, uh, not least by the sin in our lives. So, so John approaches this, this problem by answering three questions about it. There are three questions that he wants to answer about confidence this morning. First, how do we get it? How do we get confidence before God? That's verses 19 and 20. Second, what do we do with it once we have it? What do we do with it? That's verses 21 and 22. And then third, who gives it to us? Who gives it to us? Verses 23 and 24. The problem is confidence. How do we get it? What do we do with it? Who gives it to us? As we look at this passage, I want you to consider whether or not, in fact, you have good reason to be confident before God today. And if you do, how's that going to affect the way you live? And if you don't, what would you need to do even today to gain that confidence? All right, so first, how do we get it? How do we get confidence before the Lord? Look at verse 19 again. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. How do we get confidence before the Lord? Well, John's straightforward answer is, verse 19, that we must persuade ourselves that we belong to the truth. That is, that we belong to God. The, if, you're, if you're reading the, the NIV, which I just read, uh, it, it says this is how we set our hearts at rest. Literally, it's, it's how we persuade our hearts. How we persuade our hearts that we belong to the truth. Now, why do we need to persuade our hearts that we belong to the truth? Well, he tells us, verse 20, our hearts condemn us. Just right there, our hearts condemn us. Why do our hearts condemn us? Well, I mean, sometimes our hearts do condemn us falsely, don't, don't they? Sometimes we entertain false guilt. Sometimes we, we believe false things about God and then allow those false things to condemn us. But the fact is, if you're anything like me, and I think you are something like me, more often than not, my heart does not condemn me falsely. (laughs) My heart condemns me only all too truly. When John says, this then is how we know we belong to the truth, he's looking back. He's looking back early in the letter to this life of obedience and this life of love that he's been explaining ever since he introduced this idea of confidence in chapter 2, verse 28. In fact, he's actually just right before this, he's given us a very specific example of, of an obedient life of love, right? When someone sees the need of his brother and doesn't turn away from that need, but sacrificially takes from himself and gives to his brother in order to meet that need. Now, most of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have to spend a lot of time in self-examination to come up with plenty of evidence that we're not as obedient as we should be. We're not as obedient as John seems to have been talking about. We we don't have to spend a lot of time looking at our lives to find evidence that, that we're not as loving as we could be. And evidence is what these verses 
are, are all about. J- John's language of, of condemnation, the heart condemns us, that's, that's courtroom language. Our own hearts, that, that is that, that, that inner life of yours that, that, that is you, our, our hearts have knowledge against us. Our hearts have knowledge, sure and certain knowledge, of our own guilt. And like a judge who is satisfied of the, of the defendant's guilt, our hearts condemn us. Our hearts pass a verdict, a verdict of guilty. And it's in that context that John says, if we're going to have confidence before God, we are going to have to make a case to our own hearts. We are going to have to persuade our own internal judge and jury, not that we're not guilty of sin. I mean, if, if we tried that case, we would lose it every time. No, John, John's telling us that we need to persuade our hearts that we actually belong to God, that, that we belong to the truth, that the truth of God is alive and operating within us. And to do that, John encourages us to basically call two witnesses for the defense. Two witnesses. First, there is the evidence, the the witness of grace in our lives. This then is how we know, he says. He's just been talking about a, a life of obedience and a life of love. And then he looks at you and he says, this is how you know that you belong to the truth. No, not that you're perfectly obedient. But do you see any evidence of obedience in your life? Do do you see any evidence of of hatred of sin in your life? Do, Do you see any evidence of a desire to grow in holiness in your life? John says, call it. Call it to the witness stand. That evidence needs to be, be used to, to, to make the case to your heart, to begin to persuade your heart. What, what, what about love? No, no, of course, you are not perfectly loving. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain you came here already convinced of that. But, but in case you were wondering, let me just disabuse you. You, you are not perfectly loving. Your, your, your spouse can, can back me up on this, Right? Your your friends can back me up on this. Your kids can back me up on this. You are not perfectly loving. All right. But do you see any evidence of love in your life? Do you see any evidence of being willing to sacrifice your needs for your brother or sister's needs? Do you see any willingness on your own part to, to give yourself for the sake of your brother or sister? Do you feel any sense of shame when you failed to love as you know you should have? Do you see any growth in grace, in the grace of love? Are you more loving this year than you were last year? Are you more loving now that you are a Christian than you were before you became a Christian? Friends, John says, call that evidence. Call those witnesses to the witness stand, because that's evidence that you belong to the truth. That is evidence that you belong to God. Now, Henson, I can't say this enough. 
This is why the church is so important. It can be really hard to see evidence of grace in your life. I I get that. I don't have a front row seat on your life, but I have a front row seat on mine. And what I see most in the front row seat of my life is sin. that's, That's what's staring me at the face. That's always what's staring me at the face. Now, maybe that's just because of my own temperament. Uh, but, but my guess is most of us are like that. We are more aware, we are most aware of our failings, of our, of our faults, of our, of our sins. And even when we do manage on our own to see something good in our lives, so often the good that we see, just, it just pales into insignificance comparison to the sin that looms so large in our minds. This is where the church comes in. You see, when we're committed to one another, when we're involved in one another's lives over time, when we're really engaged with one another, then, then friend, your growth in love and obedience becomes really obvious to me. It may not be so obvious to you, but it becomes really obvious to me. And hopefully, vice versa. My growth in grace, in love, in obedience is increasingly obvious to you. Church is not about membership in a a critic's corner, right? Church is all about, that the body of Christ, the family of Christ is all about coming together that we might encourage one another in the work of grace, the growth in grace that we see in one another's lives. We want to be pointing that out to each other so that altogether we grow in our confidence before God. So, so Christian, and particularly member of Henson Baptist Church, when was the last time you pointed out, you like, you like looked for the opportunity, you maybe even created the opportunity, you went out of your way to point out growth in somebody else. That, that, you, that you, you went out of your way to call attention to somebody, an example of obedience that you saw in their lives, or an example of love that you saw in their lives. J- just a few weeks ago, uh, Terry Everenden uh, did this for me. We were just talking about something. I don't even remember what we were talking about, which this tells you something. I have no clue what it was that we were talking about. But you know what I, what I remember? What I remember is she took a moment to point out to me growth in grace that she's seen in my life over the last three years. And I will not forget that. That was huge. That was a massive encouragement. You think, Pastor, you need that? You're, you're a pastor. Pastors are always confident that they're Christians, right? No. <laughs> because unlike you, I have, a front row seat. I have a front row seat on the sin in my life. That's what I see. And so I need to be reminded that actually somebody else has, has noticed the work of the Spirit in my life over the last three years. And I seem to have grown even just a little bit over those three years. This is, this is huge. We should be doing this in one another's lives. You know, this is something that we try to do in, in service re- review every week. 
Some of you all know about service review. After, after, after the Sunday evening service, I sit down with the other pastors and some of the other staff and anybody really that's participated in any of the Sunday morning or Sunday evening services or the Sunday school classes, and we walk through the day. And of course, one of the things that we are looking to do is to point out opportunities for growth, right? So if something wasn't done well or if, if, if an opportunity was missed, we're going we're gonna to look for a gracious way to point that out. But a big part of this review is meant to point out to one another what went really well, what you did really well this week, how encouraging the the way you led that service or prayed that prayer was. Because honestly, most of the people that lead up front are not suffering from too much encouragement. And so we want to encourage one another in the evidence of grace and growth that we see in one another's lives. You know, I want to do this more for my kids. I don't want to ignore their faults, but I want to be the kind of dad that, that celebrates their growth, that, that celebrates grace as it ever lives. I want this to be the character of our congregation. I mean, I really do. I want us, I want us to be in that sense, towards one another, I want us to be like parents at their best, right? When, when parents have a toddler, and that, that toddler actually is not yet a toddler, but he's about to become a toddler, and he's just beginning to learn how to walk, right? And, and toddler takes that first step and then face plants, right? What do we do as, as good parents? Do we say, you did it wrong, No. Yes, you took a step. Way to go. Good first step. Let's try it again. Or, or like when parents go to their kids' recitals. I don't know how many of you all go to recitals. I have kids who play, uh, well, who are learning to play <laughs> instruments. And, and, you know, you go to recital and there are squeaks and there are missed notes and and sometimes you listen and you, th- you think, I, I think I know what song that is. <laughs> well, when it's all over, what, what, what do you say? Can't wait to go next year. I'm sure it's going to be a lot better with some more practice. No, that's not what we say. We say, that was great. That was so good. I'm so excited about all the progress that you're making. Friends, if we know how to do this with our kids, about something as unimportant as playing an instrument, or as a big a deal as learning to walk, we ought to be this way for one another in our lives as Christians. We should be looking for opportunities to encourage one another, to celebrate growth, to point out grace in each other's lives so that we might have confidence before the Lord. Well, that's the first witness. The second witness for the defense that that John tells us to call is God himself. So we're calling evidence of grace in our life as a witness, but we're also calling God himself. Verse 20, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. See what John's saying here. Our hearts are a pretty good judge of things, but they're not as good as God. This is John's point. God knows the depth of our sin even better than our own hearts know the depth of our sin. But God also knows the true state of grace in our hearts 
better than we do. And if he is convinced that, that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover those sins, those disobediences, those lack of love, that lack of love that you're so concerned about, if he's convinced that the grace of Jesus is enough for all of that, then friends, it's enough. If he's convinced that the life that he has begun in us through Christ is the genuine article, that it's his life engendered by his spirit, then friends, there is no evidence that that will overturn his judgment. There is no evidence that our hearts can bring that can overturn God's judgment. We must trust God's judgment of us in the gospel even more than we trust our own heart's judgment of ourselves. So, so Christian, if you would have confidence before God, then, then basically you need to take on my job. You need to become just like me. You need to stop being a passive listener, and you need to become an active preacher. You spend a lot of time probably listening to the condemning words of your own heart. Actually, you you realize that that the most important voice in your life, the the most dominant voice in your life is you. you. You spend all day, every day listening to yourself. And basically what I'm telling you, and I think what John is telling us is you need to cut it out. You need to stop listening to yourself so much, and you need to start preaching to yourself. Every day, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. This is the judgment that God has given us. How does that work? It works like this. My heart condemns me because I'm a sinner. My heart brings all sorts of evidence against me, and I'm feeling condemned. And I could just sit there and listen to the verdict that my heart passes, or I could say, now, be quiet for a moment, heart, because I have something to say. But it's not me. It's actually what God says. God says that every sinner that turns away from their sin and puts their faith in Christ is forgiven, is pardoned. That's what God says. And I have done that. I have turned away from my sin, and I have put my in Christ, and not just as a past tense thing back when I was five or 10 or 13 or whatever, but I'm doing that right now. Today, I am putting my faith in Christ. Therefore, God's judgment is, heart, I am pardoned. Do you see how this works? We need to stop listening to ourselves, and we need to start preaching to ourselves. <laughs> preaching God's judgment of our hearts to ourselves. Now, this is not a once-and-done conversation, sort of like my alma mater's experience at the big dance this year. No, this is daily, right? This is daily. Every day you wake up and your heart's condemning you. And so every day you need to make the case again. You need to persuade your heart of the truth of God's grace in the gospel. And so gain confidence before God. How do we get confidence? We persuade our hearts through the evidence of grace and the character of God in the gospel. That's how we get it. Second, now that we've found confidence, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Look at verse 21. 
Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. According to John, what we do with our confidence is we live lives of bold obedience. We live lives of bold obedience. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church opposed what I'm teaching right now, opposed the idea that we could have confidence before God, that we could have assurance of faith. And the reason they opposed it is because they thought that it would lead to immorality. After all, if you knew you were saved, why bother being good? That was the the logic of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Now, of course, that logic assumes that being good is how you get to heaven in the first place. But, but what they fail to appreciate, and I think what we often fail to appreciate, is John's argument here. Confidence that we are accepted before God, that we belong to the truth. Confidence does not cut the nerve of obedience. It strengthens the nerve of obedience. Because confidence and obedience go hand in hand in the intimacy of love. It's really what John's painting here. He's painting a picture of of bold, intimate confidence that's very much like the, the confidence that a loved child has in the presence of his father, of whose love he does not doubt in the slightest. Man, such a child, there is nothing that child wouldn't ask of his father. And such a child, there is nothing that such a child wouldn't do to please his father. You see, it's, it's both, right? It's, it's, it's not about earning the father's love. It's about reveling in that love. It's about, it's about a boldness that, that, that takes full advantage of the intimacy of that love. But at the same time, it is also about treasuring that love, not wanting to do anything that would dishonor that love. When John calls us dear friends there at the beginning of verse 21, literally, it's it's beloved. He says, beloved. Beloved of who? Beloved of God. Beloved. He's reminding us that this is the intimacy that we have in God's love. My, My confidence of being loved and accepted by God, does not lead me to then abuse that love. No, it leads me to want to please God any way I can. I mean, think about it for a moment, if if you can, from the child's perspective. To this day, I'm, I'm 47 years old. To this day, I want my dad to be pleased and proud of me. To this day, I don't think I will ever outgrow that. And to this day, I know that no matter how bad the scrape is that I get into, I can call him. Now, he may not be able to do anything about the scrape I'm in, but I can call him. He's not going to reject me. Now, now think about it for a moment from, from dad's perspective. I'm a, I'm a dad. Many of you are dads or, or, or moms, I think it applies it just as well to moms, right? I'm not bothered when my children come to me and ask for help, when my children 
need me. Now, I'm not bothered by that. In fact, I'm delighted that they need me. And actually, the older they get, the more delightful it is. I get, you know, when your three-year-old needs you, you, you kind of get it. And sometimes you do get a little tired of those needs. But boy, when your 16-year-old comes to you and says, Dad, I, want, I, I really, I need you. I need to talk about something. <laughs> yes, I'm needed. I love it. It doesn't bother me at all. And I also want to be proud of them just as much as they want me to be proud of them. Now, if that dynamic that just resonates with you at all, if, if that connects with you at all, with, with, with your experience or the experience of someone that you know, if, if that's true of earthly dads and kids, how much more God and his children? Right? This is what confidence produces in us. Not license to sin, but boldness. Boldness to love and to be loved. Now, some people in the health and wealth movement have taken uh, particularly verse 22 and they've twisted it to say that, that, you know, if you have faith, God's going to give you anything you ask for. So ask for that big house. Ask for that car. Ask for that raise. It's all just hanging on your faith. Others have taken verse 22 and have have described it as sort of a quid pro quo, tit for tat, I scratch God's back, he scratches mine kind of relationship. Neither of those are true. According to John, obedience here in these verses, this this obedience that he he says there at the end of, of verse 22, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him, obedience is not the cause of answered prayer, it's the condition. It's, it's the kind of relationship in which prayer is answered. And the assurance of God's love, therefore, does not lead us to, to pray selfishly, just to pray for our own ends, for our own pleasures. No, if we are confident that God loves us, then what are we going to pray? We're, we're, we're going to pray according to his will. We're going to pray for his glory. We're going to pray in a way that honors and treasures his love. I think, I think John actually raises prayer here precisely because he's just given the example of, of loving others sacrificially by giving ourselves away for them. Now, how in the world can we do that? Well, precisely because we're confident that God's not going to abandon us when we love each other in costly ways. He's not going to leave us in the lurch. He's not going to let me go and give all of my emotional strength away to somebody and then leave me there. No, he's going to meet me there. He's going to give me anything I ask. He's going to give me the strength that I need to love. He's going to give me the resources that I need to love. So I can go and sacrifice myself all day long, every day, seven days a week, and never be afraid that, like, I'm going to go bankrupt because God's going to be there. He's going to answer those prayers. He's going to give me what I need. Christian, is this how you pray? Do you find yourself boldly asking God, to supply your needs, not so that you can indulge yourself, but so that you can sacrificially give yourself away in love and so please God? Is is that what motivates your prayer? Not me, not enough. Oh, but I want it to be. I want it to be. 
Is this how, is this how you live? In, in confident, bold obedience, knowing that, that there is no risky obedience that you can take that's going to be too great for God, that, that's going to leave you hanging there in the lurch, high and dry. Or are you, are you more like me, I think, sometimes, living in fear, kind of holding out on obedience, insisting that God ensure to me ahead of time that there will be no risk or inconvenience or discomfort in this obedience before I do it. And then once I've got that assurance, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll obey now. Yeah, that's good. Because God kind of guaranteed it in advance, and I knew there'd be no real risk. No, no. We're, we are called to venture everything on this incredible love of God, this incredible intimacy, this incredible confidence that we have. So what would need to change today, Christian? What would need to change so that your life was marked by bold confidence before God? Not bold sinning, but bold loving. Not bold doubt, but bold faith. What would that look like? Would it mean forgiving someone who's wounded you, who doesn't even think they need to be forgiven? Would it mean sharing the gospel with someone that totally intimidates you? Would it mean opening your home to the friendless? Parents, would it mean that we begin to encourage our kids to pursue the kingdom of God rather than the American dream? Christian, what are you going to do this week, this month, with this confidence? Are you going to squander it on yourself? William Carey said, expect great things of God. Attempt great things for God. William Carey was the founder of the modern missions movement. And Carey understood this. He had confidence before God. Do we? If we do, let's live it out. Third and finally, who gives us this confidence? Who gives us this confidence? Verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. If the person who has confidence is the person who is characterized by bold obedience, then aren't we right back where we started? (laughs) Feeling a little condemned. I could even feel it in the room. That's kind of the way you all were feeling right at the end of this last point, right? You're feeling, wait, 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 I'm back back feeling like a failure again because I don't live that bold confidence. what What do we do? This is is what John addresses in these last two verses. He makes clear that our confidence does not finally come from what we do, but from who we know. Our confidence comes from Christ, who lives in us by the Spirit. Our confidence comes from Christ and all that He has done and all that He is doing even now in our lives. Now, to make this clear, John doesn't start with Christ. He starts with our obedience. 
What is our obedience? Well, according to John, our obedience is not law-keeping, right? It's, it's not keeping track of a long list of do's and don'ts. No, it boils down, he says, to two things there in verse 23. Belief in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another. Now, if that sounds a little bit like the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, I think it should. I think that's what John has in mind here. When John talks about believing in the name of Jesus Christ, he's not talking about about mere mental assent to truths about Jesus that you learned in Sunday school. He's talking about a complete life-engaging trust in the identity, the character, the authority, the power of the Son of God, And, and a belief that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is Jesus of Nazareth, and that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the the promised one from the Old Testament, the one who was promised to come and deliver us from our sins. This is the significance of believing in his name. His name isn't, isn't a title that helps us distinguish Jesus from John the Baptist. You know, so we've got Jesus Christ and we've got John the Baptist. They've like each got last names, Christ and Baptist, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not. Uh, a name that helps us distinguish Jesus from like some other Jesus of Capernaum. No, we're not talking about a title here. It's, it's the summation of his character. But believing in the name of Jesus Christ means believing in the significance of his perfect life in the power of his sacrificial death on the cross, in the truth of his resurrection from the dead, and in the reality that even today he sits at the right hand of the Father where he ascended and now rules over all and over everything. To believe in his name is what Christianity is all about. Because to trust that this is who Jesus is and this is what he has done is to believe in such a way that it brings life. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what Christianity is all about. That though we deserve God's condemnation, not just our heart's condemnation, we deserve God's condemnation. Jesus Christ suffered that condemnation for us on the cross. He took our place. In fact, it's because of his willingness to be that sacrifice that God has placed his seal of approval on Jesus. That's what Jesus declares in John chapter 6. The Holy Spirit himself, the seal of God's approval, placed on Christ because he was willing to do this work for people like you and me. To take our sins, to take our place. And and now the promise of the gospel, the good news, the hope of Christianity is that all who turn away from their sins, who repent... And all who put their faith in Christ, in his name, receive that very same seal of approval that Jesus received. We receive the Holy Spirit. We are forgiven of our sins. And God himself takes up residence in us. His life begins to live in us, making us alive with God's divine life. This is what eternal life is. Not just a life that knows no end, but God's life divine life. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we're inviting you to. We're not inviting you to rules. We're not inviting you to religion. We're inviting you to life. 
through Jesus Christ. We're inviting you to know what it means for God's life to come alive in you and to begin to change you so that you more and more resemble God. And it happens not by cleaning yourself up first, not by trying hard to please him. It happens by what John says right here, by believing in Christ, turning away from all the other things that you believe in that are gonna give you life and instead hanging all of your trust on him and what he's done for you. I'd love to talk to you about what that would look like today, to begin to be alive today through Jesus Christ. I'm gonna be standing in the back Come talk to me. There are going to be, be people up front who would love to pray with you. Come talk to them. Talk to the person that you came with. Just don't go away not having dealt with this most incredible offer of life in Jesus Christ. And know that when that life comes, it changes you. It leads inexorably to loving one another, to, to a life of love. Why? Because it is the life of the Spirit in us. The Spirit brings us life, but He doesn't bring just any kind of life. He brings Christ's life to us. And what did Christ do? He laid down His life for us. He loved us sacrificially. So when when the Spirit brings us life, He brings us into a life of love. 24. Who obey His commands, live in Him, and he in them. Christ doesn't live in us because we obey. No, we obey, we love, because Christ lives in us, and we in him. So what is the source of our confidence then? It is not finally what we do. It is finally who we know. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who connects us to the life of Christ and then reproduces that life in us, So Christian, those of you who already know this life, stop putting your hope and your confidence in something you did a long time ago. You know, pray to prayer, a decision you made, or or, or maybe your confidence is in in a story that your mom told you about yourself that you can't even remember. No, Christian, put your hope today in Christ. Find your confidence today in Christ, who is in you by the Spirit. Here's our confidence. Jesus Christ, received by faith. And how do we know that we've received him by faith? How do we know that our faith is genuine? Not because we're good enough, but because the Spirit is in us. The Spirit has worked faith in us so that we're believing in the name And the Spirit is working and continuing to work love through us so that we are loving one another. And you see what happens now. Because we we have now this this confidence before God, because of this life that is in us that we received from Christ, what happens? Well, I I obey. And I and I love a little bit more than I did yesterday. And and what does that do? Well it it increases my confidence because I see that I'm, I'm obeying and I'm loving and it's not my life, it's Christ in me. And so I grow in my confidence before the Lord. And so what does that do? Well, it leads me to more love and more obedience. And what does that do? Why, it leads to more confidence, which leads to more obedience, 
which leads to more confidence. You see this glorious cycle. It's not that I'm confident because I obey. But it is that there is no confidence without obedience. Because I've been given Christ. And Christ has given me his life. And his life in me is a life that loves. It's a life that wants to please the Father. And yes, my heart continues to condemn me. Of course it does. It will continue to condemn me until the day Jesus returns or the Lord takes me home to be in heaven. But what do I do when my heart condemns me? Where do I run? I run to Christ who lives in me by his spirit and is producing in me his life. Is that your confidence today? It's my prayer that not a single one of us would walk out of this room today without that very confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that so often we look for confidence in all the wrong places. We seek to commend ourselves to you. We seek to clean ourselves up for you. Oh, Lord, we we pray that you would drive us away from all those false confidences and that you would drive us instead to Jesus Christ, that we would know that in him it is well with our souls and that that confidence would then lead to lives of love and obedience that simply increase the confidence that we have found in Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.